welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we feature A.W. Tozer. Aidan Wilson Tozer was born April 21, 1897, on a small farm among the spiny ridges of western Pennsylvania. Within a few short years, Tozer, as he preferred to be called, would earn the reputation and title of a 20th century prophet. Today, A.W. Tozer presents a study of Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, Christ the High Priest. the fifth chapter of the book of Hebrews, first ten verses. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is com- compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest. But he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee, saith also in another place, <clears throat> Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when it offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest forever, a high priest in this verse it says omits forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Now one of the major doctrines set forth in the book of Hebrews is the high priesthood of the eternal Son. It was introduced in chapter 217, and uh, we are told in chapter 3-1, to consider the apostle and high priest of our faith, and again it's mentioned in 4.14, and now in chapters 5, 6, and 7, particularly 5 and 7, it is fully developed what it means, the high priesthood as God ordained it, and the fulfillment of that priesthood by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I should talk a little bit about the ideal of a priesthood, because there are a few things in the whole circle of religion that gets more abuse and has been, has suffered more abuse and has been a source of more abuse than the priesthood. Uh, Every base unworthy religion to be found uh, throughout the world has the idea of a priesthood attached to it. And there are various priestly rites throughout the various religions of the world that have offended and shocked mankind, and the priests themselves have often been corrupt, cruel, and hypocritical, 
If you want to get the shock of your life, you ought to read the, the story of the religions of Mexico held by the Aztecs and the Toltecs. 20,000 human beings, for instance, were offered in sacrifice on the, at the dedication of one temple. 20,000 human beings were stretched out on a slab, alive, and their hearts cut out with stone axes and offered in sacrifice to the deaf god of the Toltecs and the Aztecs in the olden days in Mexico. And uh, it, it's unspeakable what they did, the evil that they did. And when you consider that you don't have to go back very far to find priests who habitually lie around drunk, you will know how many abuses have attached themselves to the idea of the priesthood. Some have been self-righteous and arrogant, and uh, many uh, intimidate and exploit their poor people. And uh, yet the idea of a priesthood was not thought of first by man, but by God. And it is dimly seen in the praying father of the family who assumes responsibility for his family, who teaches his family by example and precept, and who prays for them. Job was a good example of this. Job went before God after a party that his children had had and offered sacrifice, or at least he prayed and asked God to forgive them and cleanse them because he was afraid they might have sinned. He was a priest to his family. But it is more clearly set forth in the Levitical priesthood as shown in Exodus and Leviticus and in Numbers in the Old Testament. And it is set forth in perfection in Jesus Christ our Lord. I have said that the idea of the priesthood, or a priesthood, was ordained by God, and uh, it must therefore have a need, and the need for a priesthood arises from man's alienation from God. We, it assumes that man is away from God. This is an intrigant part of truth, as a hydrogen is an is a part of water, and you can't have water without hydrogen, so you can't have Bible truth without the doctrine that man has broken with God in what the Bible calls alienation in the great fall. And any religion that ignores that man is fallen and that he is away from God, that he is like a little island that has pulled loose from the continent and has drifted out to sea and is lost from the attraction of the continent, so man is morally pulled away from God and has pulled himself completely away in fellowship so that he is said to be alienated from God and without hope and without God in the world. And somebody has to make reconciliation between God and man to bring them back together again. And there's where the idea of the priesthood lies. Now, even granted that man would return, man can't return to God because there's that which is in the way. There's sin in the way. There's been a moral breach. There's been uh, a violation of the laws of God. Man is a moral... A criminal before the bar of God. And until there is satisfaction made, until this breach is healed, until justice is satisfied, man can't return to God even if he wanted to come. Now this is Bible doctrine. And anything else is less than Bible doctrine. 
If I did not believe this, I would close my Bible and I would preach from William Wordsworth or from Shakespeare or Milton. And you couldn't preach from Milton because he believed the Bible and wove the Bible into much of his, of his poetry. But you know there's a fatal error among people, religious people, and that is Christless mysticism, a kind of nature mysticism. And the fall of the year comes around and we imagine a little man with a paintbrush out painting the leaves. And we get very, very watery-eyed about that time. And again in the spring when the frogs begin to make their music in the little ponds and uh, the man's thoughts turn to love and all this kind of thing the poets tell us about. Well, that's very dangerous because if it's crossless and without redemption and without Christ and without a proper reconciliation, it can be deadly. Yet there are churches, and they spend millions building those churches, and they never hear a thing year in and year out. I, I stopped in Chicago on my way through here, yes, from uh, to Toronto from um, St. Paul. Had to wait th three hours in the airport to catch the plane here. And uh, one of my boys came out to have a chat, brought his girlfriend out, and we had a nice chat together. And he's the only single one of them all. And uh, he told me this. He said that a year ago, during Keswick in Chicago, that there was an agnostic friend of his. He's a member and active in the Presbyterian Church there. That is, my son is. And he said a friend of his who was uh, an agnostic and a scientist decided that to please my son, he'd come out to hear me preach at Moody Church, and he did. And uh, I preached, and then I was followed by the pastor of Calvary Church, uh, Stephen Olford. So I don't know which of the two or both, but anyway. This scientist sat there, this agnostic who didn't believe anything and believed that you couldn't know anything. He sat and he heard those two sermons. And then he uh, said to my son, You know, I'm bowled over. I'm, I'm astonished. I said, Why? He said, I didn't think preachers ever said anything. He said, I never heard a preacher say anything before. He said, these two men said something. And he was greatly moved by the fact that we'd had something to say. Well, the upshot of that is, he said, now that agnostic scientist has become the Tom Hare of the Presbyterian Church. Can you imagine it? In just a year's time, he's now praying warrior, leading the rest of them in his, in his fellowship with God. That's, uh, that's the difference, and it isn't good preaching, it's preaching about something good. There's the difference. I never have claimed, never in my life claimed to be a good preacher, but I have taken second to nobody in my desire to preach about good things. And if you preach about good things, a man came down to the front, a fine-looking middle-aged man, after I'd preached on the Lord Jesus, high and lifted up, and they were asking me to, to autograph books, and he came to me and said, I have no book for you to autograph, you've written your autograph in my heart. And I was rather moved by that, because I hadn't preached good at all, I know. I hear myself on tape, but I know I'm preaching about something good, and that's the, all the difference in the world. You see, if a cook is a good cook, and the cook knows how to cook good food and wholesome, delicious food and serve it well, she doesn't have to be a bathing beauty. You know, she can just be anything, but you don't say you're a beautiful bathing beauty. You say you're a good cook, 
and all I claim to be in the wide world, I serve up good food. And I talk about God, and that's what's good. And that's what every preacher ought to do. He doesn't have to have a voice like Billy Graham, and very few people do. That gentle southern accent of his that charms people, I don't have it, and very few people do around the world. But if they set up good food, they don't have to look like a Greek god. And if they provide good truth, they don't have to preach like Spurgeon. Anything will be all right. I remember that a man came up to, uh, to Mr. Spurgeon, I believe it was, and said, I can't preach as well as you, but I preach about the same Lord you do, and that's all that's necessary. So there's danger in the churches of a crossless Christianity. And the preacher gets up and talks about the great All-Father. Used to hear them over the radio. Preach about, uh, with this we ask in the spirit of Jesus. He didn't ask it in the name of Jesus, but in the spirit of Jesus. He was a nice fellow. Well, this is false. And uh, we've got to get back to this idea of a priesthood. This idea of God here and man here and the two of them alienated from each other, not by the fault of God, but by the fault of man, getting back together by a sacrifice, and a priest who could come between God who is holy and man who is unholy and bring the two of them together. That's priesthood, and that's what is here. Now, the scripture tells us that a priest to do this, a priest had to have several qualifications. A priest had to be ordained of God. No man taketh this honor upon himself. He had to be ordained of God. Nobody could come out of the bush and say, I'm a priest, rub his face with some kind of paint and say, I'm a priest. God had to ordain the man or else he's a false priest. And all the false priests around the world are self-ordained men. But there had to be a priest in the Old Testament times whom God ordained. And then he had to be ordained for men, it says here in the text. God appointed him to help men. God needs no help. And there is no priest that can give God any help. But man needs help. And the work of the priest was to atone for sins. Now, the formula is given over in the book of Leviticus, the fifth chapter, where it says, And the priest shall sprinkle of the blood of the sin offering upon the side of the altar, and the rest of the blood shall be wrung out at the bottom of the altar. It is a sin offering. And he shall offer the second for a burnt offering according to the manner. And the priest shall make an atonement for him for his sin which he has sinned, and it shall be forgiven him. There's the idea of the priesthood. It was an offering was made for man, to God, by the priest. And the priest had this to do yet. He was to represent God to man and man to God. Before God, he pleads for the man he represents. He, he instructs, he exhorts. And with complete sympathy and understanding, he goes to God for the man. And this he can do because he is himself a man. But the breakdown, the scripture says in the Old Testament, was that the priest, when he went before God, to stand in between a holy God and fallen man, the priest was embarrassed. Always he was embarrassed because he had to atone not only for the sins of the people that he was reconciling, but he had to atone for his own sin as well. And this was, the, this was where the breakdown was. That's why Isaac Watts could say, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain, 
would give the guilty conscience peace and would take away the stain. But Christ the heavenly Lamb takes all our sins away, the sacrifice of pure blood and richer, richer blood than they, showing that the, the priest couldn't, by the blood of, of the sacrifice he made, take it away completely. He, he partly took it away. God forgave it and covered it until the time that the great priest came. So when Christ came, he qualified completely. He was ordained of God. That was qualification number one. Thou art my son, thou art a priest forever. God said that. He reconciled. That's 2.17. He made a reconciliation for the people. He had compassion. 5, 7, and 8. That, that, that teaches us then that Christ qualified as the priest and he became the author of eternal salvation. The author, the source, the giver of eternal salvation. You know, you can talk, as I've said before, you can talk too much about almost anything. You can preach too much about doctrine. You go to some churches and all you'll hear from the time you arrive until the time you leave is the second work of grace. I remember one fellow I heard was, was teaching. He taught the three psalms that our brother Gray has talked so much about, those three psalms, Psalms 22, 23, and 24. And here was his exposition. He said, in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He said, that's a sinner at the altar. And he said, the bulls of Bashan have stared upon me. He said, that's the people looking curiously on while the man prays at the altar. And he said, uh, where it says, my bones are out of joint and my strength dried up. He said he was just helpless there at the altar. Then he said, I will sing among the brethren. He got, he got through. And he said in the 23rd Psalm, the Lord's my shepherd. And the man in the 22nd Psalm said, I am a worm and no man. He said uh, in the 22nd Psalm, he was a worm. And in the 23rd Psalm, he was a sheep now. He'd been converted. Then he went through the valley of the shadow of death. That was sanctification. And he came out into the 24th chapter and said, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and he was a man. So he said, Now that was exposition. I heard that myself by a college president, college president of a little hole in his college. Well, now yeah, they see, you see, they see two works of grace everywhere. I think that the Bible teaches that there is a baptism and anointing of the Holy Ghost after conversion, and I teach it. But I don't claim to see it everywhere. I heard a man preach on the text. When Jesus touched a man's eyes and he saw men in the streets walking, then he touched him again and he saw everybody clearly. He said, there you have it. He said, the first time he's converted, the second time he's sanctified. Well, now, if you have to prove your case by that kind of exegesis, you have no case at all. If you can't go to Romans and Colossians and Hebrews and, and uh, Galatians and find it, if you have to go and worm around like that, you don't teach it. I believe you can. I believe in the New Testament we are specifically and clearly taught that there was such a thing as being filled with the Holy Spirit after conversion, and I've experienced it. But uh, you can preach that too much. You can preach water baptism too much. You can preach anything too much. But there's one thing you can never overdo. You never can preach the glory of Jesus Christ too much. You never can overdo the glory of the Son of God. Never, never. I preached some sermons down in St. Paul on the, on the man Christ Jesus, high and lifted up, series of sermons. I've never preached them here, someday I may. But the people were moved, and I know they were not moved by good preaching. 
but they were moved by the fact that I was talking about something that God had ordained that they should hear about and weren't hearing about. Now, not that that pastor isn't preaching it, he is, but I happened to strike a note that moved the audiences because I talked about the Lord Jesus, and you can't overdo that. Dr. Simpson was not a great exegete. The old, old fellow in his church, as I told you, said, uh, Brother Simpson only has one sermon. You know what his sermon was? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus Christ, resurrection and life, the truth and the way. Jesus Christ, everything. Can't overdo that. You can preach Christ continually, and nobody will ever get tired, because he's new every morning, and he never gets stale. He became the author, the source, the fountain, the giver of eternal salvation. After my article, I can't, can't give you the Latin or the Greek. But uh, uh, salvation, you know where it comes from. It comes from salus. comes from you, the salus, as they would say in singing it. You will, uh, it means uh, health and welfare and well-being. He became the author of man's eternal health and man's eternal well-being and man's eternal welfare. Conversion, salvation means more than getting your sins forgiven. Conversion means more than giving up smoking. I'm sure it'll mean that, too, if you get converted. But uh, salvation means that God brings to you in Jesus Christ eternal salvation, which is the health of the soul, the welfare of the spirit forever, and the well-being of your total life worlds without end. And the word is eternal here, eternal, forever and ever and ever and ever. You can keep on saying ever and ever and ever. Somebody wrote me a letter and said, King James' version of the Bible's all wrong because it translates certain words of Greek and Hebrew by the word forever. Said there's no such meaning in the Bible. The word forever isn't there at all. No such thing as endless existence. How silly can you get? Of course it's there. The eternal God, the everlasting God, you think that God's going to get old and die? The everlasting God? As long as God lasts, the life of his people will last. And as long as God lasts, the salvation and welfare of his people will last. And since God is not wearing out, and since the eternal God is self-existent and self-sufficient, and lives with time in his bosom, and knows no abrasion from the passing of time, but remains forever the eternal God. When I hear the word eternal salvation to them, I believe that salvation will outlast the sun and the moon and the stars and the galaxies and all the worlds. And the day will be when God will take the stars of the heaven above and throw them over his shoulder as a woman might throw a garment with sequins on it, shining and flashing. Throw them over her, his shoulder and they shall be changed, says the scripture, like a garment, but thou remainest and thy years fail not. Sure, there's eternity in the Bible, and it's the devil that tells us there isn't, and I don't care who he uses to say so. It's the devil that says that one of these days God's going to reach over as a woman reaches over after a dinner and snuffs a candle and says, that's the end of him. There'll be no end to me. There'll be no end to you. And that's just why we ought to be right with God. That's why we ought to live not for now, not for today, but forever, because there'll be no end to us. Thank God. 
salvation forever and ever unto all them that obey him. Now is that. Unto all them that obey him. I thought you got salvation by believing him. You'll find in the scriptures there's very little difference between believing and obeying. You'll find in the scriptures that the man who isn't obeying isn't believing either. And the fellow who says he has faith but doesn't obey God is fooling himself. There's a little song that's been sung to death and uh, all that, and it's not a high-class song, but it says something very fundamental, and that is the simple song, Trust and Obey. I believe that trust and obey are two wings of a bird. And as the old writer said, two wings of a dove don't weigh her down. They don't weigh her down. She rises by means of them. And trust and obey are the two wings of the Christian. We trust and we obey. And we obey because we trust. And we trust in order that we might obey. And if we try to obey without faith, we get nowhere. If we try to have faith without obedience, it ends in nothing. So he gives given eternal salvation to them that obey him and them that believe him. For obviously the two are synonymous, if not identical, synonymous. And they're like two sides of a coin. Here I have a coin. On one side there's a elk, I think, or a deer or something. The other side's a cameo of the queen. Quarter, it says, or whatever it says, I don't know. But there it is. Now, I can't split that thing edgewise with a fine saw and go down and buy anything with it. A fellow would see one side of it and think it's all right, but when he took in his hand, he'd say, what'd you do? What's the matter here? That's only half a coin. He'd toss it back. You can't pass one side of a coin. It takes two. Trust is on one side and obey is on the other. But the church has taken a fine saw and split them. We put trust over here and obey over here. And they say, you don't have to obey. It's believe. Everything's believe. You can't divide that coin. You can't separate it. And if you do, it's no good. Trust and obey, my friends. Believe God and then go get obedient. You'll find it'll work. And it'll become in your heart eternal salvation. Jesus Christ will become your all in all. Well, that's all for this morning. I want to continue in this, talking about the, that passage, that difficult passage about it's impossible for those who were once enlightened ever to be restored again. I know there are all kinds of opinions, but as we get to it, I want to preach on this. God help us. This sermon by A.W. Tozer is provided courtesy of the archives of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.